0: Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Danielle Pletka. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Foreign and Defense Policy. And I'm delighted that you're able to join us for this presentation on the war in Ukraine, on Russian losses, Ukrainian victory, and the information war. We are joined by uh, three terrific, terrific guests. Uh, Jamie Fly, who is the president of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, is joining us from Prague, I think. I didn't double check with Jamie he's nodding, Uh, Frederick Kagan, who is the director of the American Enterprise Institute's Critical Threats Project, and who has been following this this war extremely closely. And finally, George Barros, who is a researcher at the Institute for the Study of War, and who has been putting together some of the truly fantastic maps that you've been seeing in the New York Times and the Washington Post and elsewhere that gives us a sense of the conduct of the war. Uh, For everybody who is watching this online with us, if you want to submit questions, we are going to pop up a, uh, a, a an email address or Twitter uh, hashtag uh, at the bottom of your screen. You should be able to see that. And don't hesitate to share as we're very eager to answer audience questions. This is a really, really important uh, important topic. We are talking about possibly really um, an inflection point in national security, in the world, uh, in, in security policy around the world. Yesterday, we saw Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the United Nations Security Council. It was, as are all of his speeches, uh, truly impassioned. He had been on the ground in in Bucha. He had seen the atrocities that I think almost nobody who, who is on here with us will have missed. Absolutely horrifying, horrifying crimes against humanity, what Zelensky called a genocide. The United States today, with the European Union, imposed yet more sanctions, uh, part of the ratchet that the president has been talking about. Unfortunately, that ratchet is not all the way at uh, 11 for fans of Spinal Tap, it is not as tight as it could be. Uh, And the main reason for that is that Europe remains addicted to Russian energy. And both uh, the bank that deals with energy payments, Gazprom Bank, and energy supplies remain mostly exempt from sanctions, including the sanctions that were imposed today uh, in uh, in response to the human rights atrocities we saw over over the last few days. These are all the issues we're gonna talk about today and more, but where I would like very much to start is with George. George uh, is gonna put up a few maps and really walk us through where the war is. We can't understand what is happening, whether it is human rights violations or it is the political machinations or it's the sanctions. We cannot understand it unless we know what's going on on the ground. And these maps are the absolute best way to see that. So over to you, George.
1: Thank you, Danielle. Uh, can we please pull up the overall country map for Ukraine? Um, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, today I'll be sharing some updates on the current status of Russia's ground campaign in Ukraine. Um, this map here is an overview of the rough situation of, uh, the control of terrain in Ukraine, um, as of yesterday, just for context, um, in a couple minutes, we're going to be going around this map clockwise, starting at first with the 12 o'clock position near around Kiev, And then we're going to go around clockwise. We'll end up, uh, we'll finish, uh, in Southern Ukraine. Uh, can we please focus in on the map that's near Kyiv? Um, so the key takeaway is that um, in the past several days, it's become evident that the Ukrainians have won the Battle of Kyiv. Uh, Russian forces have withdrawn from uh, northern Ukrainian territories around Kyiv and are regrouping in um, southwestern Russia and in Belarus. Um, Ukrainian forces have confirmed that the Russians have withdrawn from uh, Kyiv Oblast, Uh parts of Chernihiv Oblast, which is the part to the uh, northeast of Kyiv right there. Um, And then uh, the part that's still in red, um, as of this morning, was confirmed that uh, the Ukrainians have finished their clearing operations. Um, That's called Sumy, and the Russians have withdrawn from that location as well. Um, The initial Russian withdrawal was reasonably orderly, uh, began in late March. However, um, by around April 2nd and 3rd, that collapsed um, with the Russian withdrawal falling into disarray. Um, um, with lots of russian equipment left behind isolated groups of russian soldiers um, isolated uh, from their larger formations um, and then ukrainian units moving in to uh, kill and capture those pockets of russian stragglers um, there's likely going to continue to be limited cross uh, fire border uh, crossfire from the border from belarus into uh, kiev however um Ukrainian forces have been liberating these territories and discovering evidence of uh, human rights abuses and war crimes um, in these uh, cities and uh, suburbs immediately outside of Kyiv. Um, let's go ahead and move now to uh, the overview map again, moving now slightly to the east, what we see now coming particularly out of this red Sumi area is a uh, redeployment of some Russian units that are heading towards uh, eastern Ukraine. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit later about some of these other units, but it seems like the units that are coming out of Sumi from the first tank army are more or less directly deploying uh, to the east to Kharkiv. Um, can we please zoom in on the, uh, the Kharkiv slash uh, Luhansk map? What's very interesting about these units that are moving is that um, they're trying to go to eastern Ukraine to reinforce the Russian stalled efforts to uh, capture more territory in the east. What's been very interesting is that um, over the past probably two weeks, Russian efforts to try to seize more of the eastern Ukraine's Donbass region have been stalled uh, on these key front lines that are in the map here. I draw attention to the two uh, green circles that are on the right, uh, where we see Ruzhna, Severodoninsk, and Popasna. Those have been the location of some very intense fighting over the past probably two to three weeks, and the Russians have made uh, very, very little progress. They've been stalled out there. This is where the Kharkiv axis actually comes into play with that green circle on the left with the very important city of Izum. We see is a Russian effort to try to regroup forces and introduce more forces coming from that Sumi axis uh, to Kharkiv to come south to the city of Izum. And it seems like those forces are trying to bypass the city um, and then go towards down that main highway to the city of Slovyansk. We assess that Russian units likely aren't going to be able to have a, a breakthrough on the main uh, front uh, in eastern Ukraine, and the only way that they're going to be able to achieve success is likely to attempt to encircle um, the Ukrainian, the large Ukrainian force that's been operating in the Donbass since 2014. And we think that uh, this area here, in southern Kharkiv near Izum, this is likely that fighting is likely going to be the location of some of the m- most decisive battles that uh, is going to occur. Um, at The next stage of this war as the Russians scale back. Um, let's transition now to uh, Mariupol uh, on the sea of the uh, on the coast of the uh, Sea of Azov. Um, we are observing a remarkable defense of the city of Mariupol. Uh, Institutionally, we actually got us this wrong. We expected that uh, Mariupol would fall by the end of March. However, Ukrainian forces that are held up in Mariupol continue to hold the city and make the Russians pay a price for uh, capturing it. We've actually, I I would flag for the audience that for this map, we've actually not uh, received a lot of granular data in probably the past week and a half to update um, the control lines that we see here. However, uh, we are increasingly assessing that. As the Russians are assaulting Mariupol, whatever forces are left from that battle will likely not be combat effective um, after they take the city, and it's, it's unlikely they'll be able to redeploy uh, elsewhere. Um, finally, let's transition back to the overall map. Um, I'm now going to focus on the south. Um, if you see Crimea there going slightly north uh, west of Crimea, we observe that the, the Russians are conducting limited counterattacks in order to secure its positions in these northern parts of Kherson Oblast, and then also in southern Mykolaiv, where some uh, limited Ukrainian counterattacks and likely Ukrainian partisan resistance in Kherson have degraded Russia's control in this region. Um, just yesterday, Ukrainian forces recaptured three new villages in northern Kherson, um, and we've not seen the Russians try to, uh, in the recent weeks, uh, not attempt to try to bypass Mykolaiv and go for um other strategic littoral areas closer to Odessa so the Ukrainian defense seems pretty strong there um I think uh I'll just add one final thought before I turn it back to you with regards to the larger Russian redeployment of combat units from around the Kiev and Chernihiv area back towards the east uh, we assess that these units are a spent force they're likely not going to be an effective fighting force and it's going to take them quite a time to become combat effective and redeploy elsewhere meaningfully, um, if at all. These units, they're wrecked. They have truly, truly terrible morale. Um, there are reports of desertion. There have been independent reports of uh, men in these units killing their own officers. And there's also support uh, reports of insubordination and um, men from these units uh, surrendering to Ukrainian forces rather than go back to Russia. So. Um, It'll be interesting to watch the next phase of this campaign and um, this is generally uh, what we're looking at on the ground now. Thank you.
0: Thank you, George. You know, uh, for, for people who are watching that, I don't know if you, felt the same way, which is just shaking my head in wonderment at, at the performance of the Ukrainians. You know, for the Russians not to know their enemy, not to understand this is, is just staggering. And I want to add another thing. Uh, and, and this is this is going to sound like a commercial, but George, uh, for, for people who have worked in the U.S. government, uh, they have had the privilege of seeing classified information that is uh, that is, you know, has has at hundreds of people and satellites and uh, human intelligence and all sorts of factors Pieced into it, and I don't think that in our U.S. government anyone is seeing better maps than what you just presented to our uh, to our our guests at this uh, at this presentation. So really, kudos to you and to ISW. I have a better understanding in the last five minutes than I have from reading the front page of the New York Times for the last two months. Now, the commercial moment is over. Fred, let let's talk about this. Um, the Russian the Russians are losing where the Russians are pulling, but they haven't lost. Where the Russians are pulling back, we are seeing the atrocities that uh, President Zelensky talked about. I think Bucha is only one small example of the kind of things we've seen. People with their hands tied behind their back, shot point blank, women raped in front of their children and then murdered, mass graves, the kinds of things that we really haven't seen, at least in Europe, since the Holocaust. And uh, and I want to understand this in in as we talk about not only Russia's losing, but Russia's strategy.
2: So, first of all, as you say, the good news is that the Ukrainians have won the Battle of Kiev uh, decisively. That battle is over. Kiev is secure from ground invasion, and I don't see the Russians uh, coming back after it um, any time soon, if at all. And that's a remarkable achievement. No one would have expected the Ukrainians to be able to do that at the beginning of this war. It's a testament to Ukrainian courage and skill. It's also a testament to Russian incompetence, which has been at a level that is simply staggering. Um, but Russian incompetence is staggering. Russian malevolence is also staggering. Um, the, the atrocities are horrific, but they are not accidental. Uh, the Russians appear to have a playbook when they go into and take control of a new territory. And they use words like filtratia and "zachistka." Uh, filtration and cleansing, um, and we have reports. The uh, Human Rights Watch did put out an excellent report on this uh, from their interviews, describing what some of that looked like, and it involved Russian troops looking, you know, mace- making uh, male prisoners strip, looking at their tattoos, and then executing people who had tattoos they didn't like. Um, this is what quote denazification looks like, um, and it was very clearly ordered. And it was this, so these atrocities are not accidental, all of them. Some of them are. Some of them are the result of just horrific and criminally negligent um, uh, indiscipline. But some of them were clearly ordered and directed, and I suspect from very, very high levels. Um, and it, it's absolutely horrific. And here's the worst part. What we're seeing in Bucha is a microcosm of what is going on in Herson and Mariupol, which we're not seeing this the russians this this systematic atrocity is occurring everywhere the russians are in occupation and it will continue to occur as long as they are in occupation and so i'm going to preempt an obvious question that you i know would ask me which is what should we do about that the first thing that we should be doing about that is rushing to the ukrainian military All of the resources that it requires to retake its territory from the Russians as quickly as possible to stop these atrocities, which will otherwise continue as long as the Russians are in control of Ukrainian territory
0: so, Fred, you 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 said we need to rush them things. The President came out uh, last week at the end of last week, and he announced yet another package of support. Um, I've heard you know my my podcast co-host Mark Thiessen, say repeatedly, we promised them eight hundred stinger missiles. Zelensky said they need five hundred a day. I'm not sure they need five hundred a day, but they certainly need more than what they're receiving. This is just a trickle. What you said must be clear to absolutely every Western leader, to Joe Biden, to Boris Johnson, to to Olaf Scholz in in Germany, to Macron in France. Why? Why are we not doing more and why are we not doing more faster?
2: I think I think there are a few issues at play. Um, One is that I'm sure that it's actually bureaucratically difficult to do this. And that's not a toss off. You have been in government. Jamie has been in government. You understand that bureaucratic difficulties are real obstacles. Um, and the only way that they can really be overcome is if cabinet-level officials or the president starts every meeting pounding on the desk and yelling, is, have you done this yet? Is this fixed yet? Right? I mean, it's got to be that kind of priority level. And I'm not sure that I've seen evidence that the president or the secretaries of state or defense have been doing that. Why haven't they? I, I you know, I don't know. There is a narrative out there That i think is important to address which is we need to be careful not to provoke putin and we need to be we need to meter our aid and our sanctions so that we don't promote provoke putin to do something even worse and there's a longer like what like Like what (laughs) like nuke us right i mean okay that's the that that's the bogey and that's when that's what people mean when they use the code word of saying well that would be world war three you know um The the fear is that Putin will attack NATO in some way, but in particular that he'll escalate to nuclear weapons. To which I, I have to say, look, we've already crossed a bunch of things that Putin has said were red lines in terms of providing support to the Ukrainians. We have no way of knowing exactly at what point he might escalate beyond that. But there's a separate conversation that we need to be having about this escalation issue, which is I thought that we had nuclear weapons ourselves in order to deter a Russian nuclear attack on us. So either we think that our deterrence mechanisms will work, or we have a whole other problem that we need to be having a huge conversation about. Personally, I think that they will work, certainly if we're talking about providing Ukraine with assistance at the level that I think we're talking about here and not having US or NATO forces intervene directly in the fighting in Ukraine, which no one is asking for right now. I think that we could be doing a lot more, but I think that this fear of provoking a Putin, who is evidently insane, I mean, there's, we, we do have a problem that he is clearly, as the Russians would say, walked away from his mind. Um, but I don't think he's walked away from his mind so much that he w- wishes to end the world in a fiery apocalypse And therefore I think that nuclear deterrence will continue to work to allow us to do what we need to do here and what we should do and what is the moral imperative to do here as well as a national security
0: imperative. Absolutely. So over the last 20 years, we have been told, well, first we had the end of history, that was 30 years ago. And we have been told that 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 information warfare, that's so 20th century, uh, all of the work that is being done to provide information to captive nations, to people who live under tyranny is really pointless. That's what the internet is for. And I'm really, really proud to say that uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty and its supporters over those years lasted and became stronger. And this is the moment, I think, for which you exist. So, Jamie, I want to ask you a specific question, but then please do talk about what it is that your people are also going through. I know that you evacuated a bunch of, of people out of other countries in the East to Ukraine to protect them from other threats. But let's just talk for one second about this great question. Joe Biden said, and it was my moment of greatest support for Joe Biden, Joe Biden said, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Now we're not gonna go and take him out. He's not Saddam Hussein, but the people of Russia need to know what it is that their brothers and sisters, their children, their forces have been ordered to do by the president. And part of your job is to get that information into them so that they understand that the propaganda they're seeing is lies and the information that RFERL provides is ground truth. Talk to us a little bit about your mission, about how you're doing that.
3: Sure, thanks uh, Thanks for having me, Danny. Um, so we're certainly doing that on an hourly, uh, minute-by-minute basis inside Russia, despite the, the challenges. And we've been doing it for, for 70 years in the case of reaching Russian-speaking audiences. Um, we've been, though, under great pressure inside Russia, uh, basically ever since Vladimir Putin came to power. Uh, we were invited in uh to set up a bureau by his predecessor, uh Boris Yeltsin. And uh ever since Putin arrived, he's slowly tried to chip away at our access to the Russian people, uh depriving us of radio licenses, blocking our video content from TV airwaves inside Russia. And now closing off the digital space, which was really the area that we and a number of other outlets were relegated to. The good thing about that in recent weeks is that despite the fact that our websites got blocked at the early phase of the war, and uh, to be clear, the Russians were very explicit why they were blocking us and other independent media. We actually got formal letters from Roskomnadzor, the Russian media regulator, citing specific articles. Uh, In our case, it was articles about POWs, it was about Uh, Russian soldiers dying in Ukraine. It was about the fact that civilian areas in Ukraine were being targeted, and obviously what the Kremlin is referring to as a limited special operation in the East. Uh, But after we refused to censor that content, after we refused to take it down, they blocked our websites uh, the next morning. Despite the fact that those sites are blocked, and the fact that social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter are now uh, also blocked inside Russia, we've seen extreme demand from audiences inside the country uh, to adapt to this new environment, to start using virtual private networks uh, to access our content and other platforms, uh, to engage on the mirror sites that we are able to push out on a daily basis. These are changing URLs that stay one step ahead of the sensors at Roskomnadzor. And so the interest in our content uh, remains at historic levels, just as it was in the first week of the war before the blocking began. And all of the coverage that people are coming to uh, are is the coverage of the challenges that, that Fred uh, was just describing. It's uh, people want to know what their troops are actually up to in Ukraine. They want to see the stories uh, of the POWs. They want to see our coverage of funerals, which are now playing out across Russia. Some are are sometimes shielded and hidden, but we're able, uh, still uh, at times on the ground, to report on those funerals, to talk to the families uh, who have now lost loved ones fighting in Ukraine, and then also to highlight the personal stories of Ukrainians, uh, which we see great interest in from Russian audiences. And we're able to do that because we don't just have journalists who have worked with us for many years inside Russia. But we have a very significant presence inside Ukraine. Uh, and even though we've had to move some people around for security reasons away from Kiev while the Battle of Kiev was being fought, uh, we're able to still cover vast parts of the country and provide video and other content that Russians are certainly not getting from state TV, where they're being told, obviously, a very different story about what's happening uh, in this war.
0: So I, I'm really awed by the, the courage of people who continue reporting on the ground at, at great personal danger, truly, to themselves and in some instances to their families as well. This is, this is huge. And kudos, kudos to them and to, to RFE for supporting them. Jamie, this is a hard question. Um, part of what your mission is, is not, is not to undermine governments, it's to share the truth. It's not it's not to to pull away the pillars of support from the likes of Vladimir Putin. It is merely to provide the information that their state controlled news doesn't provide. So I know this is going to be a hard question to answer, understanding that context. But do you sense Do your people sense that information that is being provided is eroding support for the war inside Russia? Do people believe the lie or do people know the truth?
3: I think it's a mixed picture that we see as we continue to try to do reporting on the ground. And one way we do this is through so-called Vox Pops, where we just talk to average Russians uh, on the streets of cities and towns across the country. And we've been doing this both before the war, as the military buildup was occurring, and then also subsequently we just did – I think we posted our our last one yesterday – Um, and talking about uh, what their understanding is of what's happening, what the reaction is. Yesterday, the one was people getting asked about Butra and whether they've heard about it, what they know of it, what their response is. Uh, And I'd say those Vox Pops um, paint at times an optimistic picture, but more often than not, these days, it's a pretty depressing picture. Prior to the war, the positive story was that most of the interviews we did with average Russians, um, they were astonished at the fact that anyone would talk about a war against Ukraine. We got a lot of people responding. uh, That's uh, not even imaginable. I have my cousins in Ukraine, my aunts in Ukraine, my uncle lives there. Why would we go to war with Ukraine? And I think that's partly because state media, as far as we could tell, were very slow. We've seen the evidence that's also been discussed about how the military was unprepared, Well, the propagandists were also unprepared. I think most of the Russian uh, vaunted uh, information apparatus did not actually think that Putin would send the country to war in Ukraine. And their messaging, even in the days uh, right before the war, was actually mocking the U.S. and NATO and uh, laughing at the notion that there would be a war against Ukraine. And so the state uh, media apparatus was a little bit slow and behind the curve initially. Um, The concerning thing from what we've seen is that After the propaganda outlets really switched into high gear, began to pump out a lot of the rhetoric about uh, Nazis in Ukraine, drug uh, drug addicts at the top of the Ukrainian government, uh, nuclear weapons being developed there, biological weapons, and really went into overtime on this uh, on all of their major TV channels. That seems to have had an effect. And so there has been uh, more support that people are expressing for some of these crazy conspiracy theories uh, about why it was necessary for Russia uh, to go to war. I think there's also a rally around the flag mentality, uh, and partly because the full scope of the war has not been fully explained. And now that the Russian uh, government's stated goals are much more limited, it might be easier for them to defend this domestically as well, because they don't have to explain why there are troops in the suburbs of Kiev. Uh, They can make it uh, about uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, Uh, defending or connecting Crimea, uh, areas uh, within Russia that might be a more popular justification. So we've really seen a mixed story. Now, having said that, we still see people protesting. We are, as much as possible, covering those protests. Several of our journalists were detained for a few hours the first weekend after the war started covering those protests. But we've seen, because of the new law, that basically uh, could charge people with treason and 15 years in prison for expressing dissent or criticizing the military, we've seen even the protests die down to a certain extent. And I think those who are not going to go along with the conspiracy theories and propaganda, uh, many of them have decided to leave the country and the others have fallen silent for now. And the question I think we're watching is as the effects of sanctions spread and it starts to hit people's day-to-day lives, will that change the thinking? And they look at the cost of the military intervention, more funerals, Will people suddenly be emboldened uh, to actually ask questions? And again, we have people searching out our content, despite the fact that it's blocked, which is a positive sign. Uh, But I think if you just look at the overall picture, there's far too many Russians that seem to have bought into the propaganda. And so we're doing a lot of work on a daily basis to figure out how we can reach them and connect with them uh, if they've at least... Uh, been willing to listen to some of the propaganda. What are the ways that we can share the truth and the factual information about the war with that target audience?
0: Uh, I have a question about propaganda, but I know Fred has a comment. And please uh, don't, uh, George, Jamie, Fred, don't don't ask my permission. Just uh, unmute yourself and 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 jump in, uh, Fred.
2: Thanks, Danny. Yeah. So I'm going to warn you up front that my source for this is Ukrainian military reporting general staff and Ukrainian military intelligence. And I have no independent verification of what I'm about to tell you, but they have been reporting on this a lot and it tracks more or less with what we're seeing on the battlefield. There is one demographic that seems to be getting a very important message in Russia, which is military age males liable for conscription are hearing that this is not a war you want to fight in and they are running away. They are hiding. We, are, we are definitely have anecdotal evidence that they are le- trying to leave the country to avoid conscription. They are trying to refuse conscription. If conscripted, they're trying to refuse to go to the war. And we're seeing, again, almost entirely from Ukrainian military intelligence and Ukrainian general staff, reports of, as George said, refusals to, to obey orders, uh, attempts by um, contracted soldiers, since the Russian military is partly professional, Uh, to end their contracts and leave. So there is a network, and the Ukrainians are fueling this by trying to help connect Russians that they've captured with their families and have them talk and spread the word about what this is like. It is pretty clear that the demographics that are most immediately threatened in Russia with having to go into what has become a meat grinder are aware that this is a meat grinder and are aware that they do not want to be fighting in this war. And so I think that it's important not because I I agree with everything Jamie said, which tracks with everything else that we're seeing as well in terms of the rallying around the flag. But I think that there's the demographics of that are complicated. And we shouldn't read that to mean that there is going to be a lot of support in Russia for the kind of nationalist, you know, atavistic uprising that that had, you know, millions of Russians fighting the Nazis. The real Nazis in the Second World War—that's not what I think we're seeing at
3: all.
0: So I have, uh, and I'm going to intersperse some questions from the audience as we as we proceed with our our back and forth. Um, an interesting question, uh, George. Maybe you can ask answer this, um, and if not, you, Fred. Um, how much of Russia's military manpower has been lost? As a result of their war in Ukraine, this I, this is actually a great question because it gives you a, a sense of just how much Putin has thrown at this. So either George, could you can you take that on? Thanks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a bunch of figures floating around. I'm not going to comment on them. The Ukrainians, uh, their military intelligence, they throw up numbers. The Russians throw up their own numbers. Their independent NATO numbers, which are likely more accurate, somewhere between the two. Um, but but really, what's what's important to think about when we're talking about the Russian losses, are not necessarily losses of, uh, you know, materiel and personnel uh, in terms of body counts of integers of the number of soldiers, but how losses have been spread across Russian units and the ability of Russia's military to have units that are still combat capable, as well as have the ability to regroup uh, and replace uh, individuals into units so that Russia still has capable uh, combat units. Uh, We're still doing a study on um, the units that have engaged in combat in Ukraine, uh, what we can confirm about those losses. Um, The key takeaway of some of the preliminary findings of that study is that it seems that almost all main combat maneuver elements within the Russian army, uh, also within their naval infantry, and also within uh, their airborne uh, forces, the VDV, They've almost all participated, almost every regiment, almost every brigade has participated in combat operations and sustained losses within Ukraine. Um, Some of those units have been likely rendered uh, either temporarily or permanently until serious regrouping efforts combat ineffective. Some of them remain uh, uh, reduced and less effective. Some of them remain likely still combat effective, but it seems like a significant amount of them are rendered combat ineffective. Um, I'm not prepared to throw out an exact number, but... um, Probably, Fred, you know, feel free to add in on this, probably probably at least half of the Russian units that have participated are combat ineffective for the foreseeable several months.
2: Yeah, George, thank you. Uh, so it's a great study that the ISW Russia team has been doing of, of actually looking through the entire Russian order battle um, and, and figuring out which units have and have not fought there. And the answer is there is no reserve. Uh, there is no large scale reserve of uncommitted forces in Russia. Um, and they are scraping the bottom of the barrel, and everything that we're seeing, including this this study that we're working on, confirms that. Look, I'll go out on a limb in terms of numbers and say that, you know, I'm prepared to accept, that, you know, at a minimum, NATO numbers that were given uh, some more than a week ago of 40,000 uh, killed and wounded, and that you killed and wounded such that they won't return to service in this war, numbers probably significantly higher by now. Um it's I'm I'm confident that the Russians have already lost more killed in this war uh, than they've lost in Afghanistan. Um, yeah,
0: o- over over more than a decade.
2: Yeah. Over more than a decade in, in in what has it been? Six weeks. Um, absolutely stunning. Um, those lo- if you if you accept a number of 40,000 and you put that on the on the 200,000 sum that they mobilized to begin with, that's a staggering loss ratio. Anyway, if you reflect on the fact that most of those 40,000 will have been taken among combat units, which made up only a portion of that 200,000, it's a devastating loss ratio. And it's, it is it is borne out by what we're seeing, that Russian units that are supposedly, you know, a few battalions launch attacks and they do not perform the way, you know, a full, you know, few battalions would operate. So that the losses have been devastating and to zoom back, Danny, let me put it to you another way. Putin is in the process of expending the conventional Russian military on this war. When this war is over, there will fundamentally not be a functional combat-ready Russian military until he rebuilds it. That, that, that is the magnitude of the losses that, that Russia is taking and will continue to take in this effort. And that is something that has huge geopolitical ramifications that we need to wrap our heads around also.
0: Yeah, no, and it, it comes back to this question of why it is that we are so persuaded, so deterred by by Russia, given how they've performed. That's another issue. I wanna, I wanna take a question to Jamie that I don't think enough people pay attention to. And I understand why it's not the big shiny sparkly object in the middle of this that this conflict has been, uh, but Belarus is is very important. Uh, you had you had uh, reporters on the ground. Jamie and Belarus, they there now, I think, gone. Uh, again, we don't. We, Lukashenko is in that elite small group of truly bad, evil leaders who have been sanctioned not only by the United States but also by the European Community. So we, we're talking about Kim Jong Un, um, Vladimir Putin, and uh, and and uh, and in this instance, Lukashenko as well. Uh, but that has become a staging area for the Russians, and uh, it has become, in some senses, some strategic depth for the Russians as well. Can you just give people a sense of the role that that Belarus is playing and why? what, what has happened to your people there?
3: Sure. And, and looking back at the last two years, uh, I think there were a lot of warning signs that we should have seen uh, as things deteriorated in Belarus. Uh, some insecurities that Putin had that uh, because of what happened in Belarus, but also some tactics that uh, Lukashenko has now deployed, especially when it comes to information control that we now see the Russians adopting. Uh, there was a, a presidential election uh, in uh, 2020 in uh, August. Uh, Lukashenko was fraudulently uh, reelected, uh, and the public rose up as a result of that. Uh, mass street protests, and Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya, who was running as a candidate uh, because her husband, uh, a a popular YouTuber, uh, because he had been jailed, Uh, it it appears that she won the election, surprisingly, uh, but obviously the authorities prevented her uh, when the votes uh, were counted and presented from winning. Uh, She eventually had to flee the country, as did many others who were leading Uh, the opposition at that time, uh, and a brutal crackdown ensued. Early in that crackdown, it's important to note, we took note of it at the time, uh, Putin actually dispatched Kremlin propagandists, uh, employees of Russian state TV, uh, to actually work at Belarusian state TV because so many of the employees of the Belarusian propaganda outlets were disgusted by the attacks on protesters. They refused to work. Some of them quit. Uh, and the Kremlin actually parachuted its its own propagandists in to help continue uh, broadcast to the Belarusian people to try to uh, quash this uprising. Um, unfortunately, the brutal tactics uh, worked. Uh, they were able to quiet the protests down, but uh, they did so at great cost, imprisoning journalists, imprisoning protesters. You would uh, some of our people as they went out at the time to cover. Just being on the street anywhere near a protest, you would get thrown in the back of a police van. You would get a 15 day prison sentence. And so some of our people were in cycling in and out of prison uh, just for trying to cover a protest. Uh, So now uh, things are have been more quiet. But Putin used that opportunity, the vulnerability of Lukashenko uh, to uh, extract all kinds of concessions from Lukashenko to pull Belarus closer to use. Uh, Belarus now as a staging ground for these attacks. Uh, and I think the, the general sense is that the Russian military has no intention of ever leaving Belarus at this point. They already had a presence there, but they've expanded it significantly. There's been talk of putting nuclear weapons, uh, Russian nuclear weapons, on Belarusian uh, territory. Uh, and so it's a very sad story because the Belarusian people are ultimately suffering both from Lukashenko's repression uh, and now have essentially become occupied by uh, a Russian force that is using them for their own means. So we have had to move our journalists out of Belarus. Our office was actually raided by the the Belarusian KGB last summer. Uh, We have three of our colleagues who are still in prison uh, in Belarus for their journalism. The rest we've had to move out, and they have now found a safe haven, thanks to our Lithuanian uh, friends in Vilnius. Uh, where we're going to be setting up a hub for journalism uh, aimed at Belarus. The final thing I'll say is there have been amazing stories, some of which we've been able to report even from outside the country, about the role of average Belarusians in defying Lukashenko's efforts at times to help the Russian military. There are all kinds of reports of sabotage of Belarusian railways that were being used to move uh, Mm -hmm. Russian military uh, equipment. There are reports of defections from the Belarusian military, Uh, from some units that were ordered to assist Russian forces in the invasion. Uh, It's hard to verify all these things, but these are uh, reports that are still shared uh, with us uh, from some of our audience uh, inside Belarus. Uh, And so it'll be interesting to see uh, with this repositioning what more Putin tries to get from Lukashenko uh, to support his ongoing efforts in Ukraine.
2: And I'd really like to, I really want to give a shout out also to, to George himself and the team, which which did an amazing job of tracking that Belarusian protest movement uh, in into in de tremendous detail and, and laying out at the time, in real time, as Jamie, a lot of what Jamie said, but also um, showing how skillfully Lukashenko used the zero leverage that he had on Putin Actually, to delay and interfere with Putin's plans for incorporating Belarus. And I think you can still see little hints of his pushback there. I don't know, George, if you wanted to talk about any of,
1: of that. Sure, sure. So just for context to the larger audience, you know, Putin's had a long-term strategic objective about going back to the 25 years to incorporate Belarus into a federalized structure within a larger union uh, with a formal treaty with Russia called the Union State. Um, essentially, Lukashenko has for the past 25 years attempted to slow walk uh, the implementation of this treaty, which he's already signed. And, and over the past uh, two years, he's made some tremendous concessions um, um, under duress from pressure from Putin. He's still trying to, like Fred said, uh, slow walk that and uh, resist aspects of it. Um, but it's really amazing. Over the past two years, You know, the Russians had set um, you know, I'm talking about this because the Russians, uh, and their staging areas in Belarus, it immediately threatens Ukraine, but it also it threatens NATO. Um, the Russians have made tremendous efforts to establish uh conventional military presence within Belarus. Um, you know, it, it flew under the radar, but back in, I think it was April, uh, 2021, the Russians established what they call a permanent, um, training center, uh, in Brest, which is, uh, right next to the Polish and Lithuanian borders. And they claimed that, um, you know, they would have some permanent Russian uh, military presence there, which was unprecedented. The Russians, they only had had a radar bases in Belarus They never had uh, actual combat forces in Belarus. But that was a strong indicator. And we have, uh, you know, throughout the two years, we saw increased levels of exercises between Russia and Belarus with explicit goals of doing things like moving large quantities of fuel and ammunition and lubricants to, to, to Belarus. Um, we saw efforts to integrate Russian and Belarusian units down to very deep levels, down to you know taking a company of Belarusian paratroopers and a company of Russian paratroopers, which is about you know maybe a couple hundred guys, and then put them together, forming them into a joint battalion under a Russian commander, and have them conduct battlefield tasks together. Fred, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's much deeper integration than what NATO does. And what's interesting is, you know, when we were doing this analysis, we thought to ourselves, the Russians are preparing to have uh, essentially incorporate Belarus into Russia, subsume its military structures down to, you know, company battalion levels. And this is gonna be a great springboard if the Russians ever decide to play the, the soki Gap, the soki Corridor play to attack, uh, you know, that strategic territory between Poland and Lithuania. They ended up going for Ukraine, but nonetheless, the Russians, um, you know, them having destroyed their conventional military in a stupid way, Ukraine, not non, uh, um they've set conditions to be able to attempt to do very dangerous things in NATO's eastern flank as well. So um, the Russians are presenting not just a flank threat to Ukraine, but NATO as well.
0: So one of the things that everything that all three of you have said underscores to me is how vitally important it is, just from a national security standpoint, set aside the moral standpoint, how vitally important it is that we pay attention to larger countries trying to influence and gobble up smaller countries. You know, And I know that some of our listeners are going to be saying to themselves, I didn't tune in to understand about Belarus, you know, Again, if you don't understand what's happening there, if you don't look at what's happening in Kazakhstan, you know, much as the much of those of us you know who said uh, you need to pay attention to what's going on in Afghanistan in the year 2000 and early 2001, you got to pay attention to what's going on because it leads to bigger things, and this is really what we've seen. I'd like to take a few questions that we have and just um, meld them together, if I might, uh, because I think that uh, they're important, and I think they're mostly. Directed towards George and Fred, but I also think that there's an element for you in here, um, in here, Jamie. the The first is is um, the first is uh, is will the Russians will the Russians escalate? Um, is there you know we talked at the beginning about being self-deterred by the prospect of Russian use of oh. tactical nuclear weapons, but um, in each instance. Uh, uh, there has been a piece of equipment that we have mentally tied it to. Oh, if we give them the MIGs, they'll use the nukes. Ooh, if we give them the tanks, they'll use the nukes. Okay. Let's tackle that question. But at the same time, so take that and, and, and place it in one part of your, your, your mind. Um, we also are looking for one of our, uh, uh, Audience is looking for some specificity on how we can ramp up the the kinetic game. Um, is there a nuclear deterrence option for for us? And and how far can we go without risking actual uh, uh, you know conflagration? Uh, So a a difficult question, and one I think that depends more on personality than on equipment. Um, Last bit, and I apologize for piling them on, but they are all interrelated. It is, again, an important question. Given Russia's combat ineffectiveness, are they actually less of a threat than we've been talking about? I mean, you know, we've all been talking about the risk of, George just mentioned uh, Poland and Lithuania. You know, we've talked about Russian tanks rolling into Warsaw. How real is any of this, given how poorly they've performed? Or does Putin not know that they've performed poorly? And that maybe is something Jamie wants to take on. That's a ton for, for all of you. Go for it.
2: Well, look, I mean, it's it's apparent that the Russian conventional military threat to NATO's eastern flank is in the process of being destroyed in Ukraine for now. Um, but Putin built this shambolic military. Um using resources that he didn't objectively have because it was a priority for him and we have seen in the past that dictatorial states are usually able to do any one thing that they put their minds to and so if putin or god willing his successor undertakes to reconstitute the russian military it could pose a significant threat to nato in the future so we should not be looking at this and concluding that we're good to go and we will not have to worry about a russian threat we have a very aggressive very angry wounded bear right now that blames NATO for his failures unjustly in truth um, and inaccurately, and who will want to take revenge and who will likely try to rebuild a military to be able to do that over time. Now, on the one hand, that leads to discussion of sanctions and the effect that sanctions can have on making it very hard for him to do that. But on the other hand, it means that, yeah, we need to recognize that the Cold War is back And although the Russian conventional military threat to Eastern Europe is significantly degraded for the moment, that is not going to be a permanent condition. And we have to start planning in how we're actually going to defend our Eastern NATO allies against this threat. Now, I would also take on the issue of deterrence by saying, look, here's the here's the problem. No one other than Putin knows what is the threshold for Putin to escalate to the use of nuclear weapons or how and where he would do that. We have various statements, we have Russian doctrine, we have various things that the Russians have said, but at the end of the day, we will only know when he does it. Um, We have to make our own best calculations, therefore, about how important is it for us to provide the Ukrainians with any particular set of capabilities in order to achieve common interests? What risks are we prepared to run? And how do we mitigate those risks? And I think we best mitigate those risks by making it very clear to Putin what the consequences for him will be of escalating. And I think that this is one of the things that the, the president could be clearer about. Um, and I think that we, it, this is, we, we need to be very clear that if Putin uses nuclear weapons, then we're not going to respond to sanctions. Now we don't necessarily need to respond to nuclear weapons. There are things that we could do that are do not involve our own use of nuclear weapons that would be very bad for Putin. And that would be a kind of a horizontal escalation of a sort that we should consider threatening him with. Look, we could at this point go into Ukraine and destroy the entire Russian military that is there. We could finish this war. And we could also destroy the Russian military that's in Belarus and in Syria. It's very clear at this point that the Russians could not stop us from doing that conventionally if we undertook to do it. I'm not advocating that we undertake to do any of those things right now. I am saying that those are good options to put on the table in public and private conversations with Putin. Just to say, let me let me help you understand the first thing that happens if you use a tactical nuclear weapon anywhere is your conventional, mil- you've lost the war in Ukraine and your conventional military is destroyed. And then we can talk about what happens after that so maybe don't go there. And I think we need to be much clearer about y- using a language of hard force deterrence as a way of, of telling Putin, do not think that you there is any room for you to use tactical nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction and the response will be sanctions. And that will give us room, I think, uh, to focus on um, what we need to provide the Ukrainians because of our own interests and also because of the humanitarian obligations that we have for everyone who ever said never again with regard to the holocaust well we've had we've we've had again since then Right. Yeah.
0: No kidding. No kidding. Uh, it is. It is. What, it, we should be ashamed. Uh, certainly more ashamed than we are. Uh, never again. Our uh, empty words, not just in Ukraine, but also in uh, uh, in uh, Xinjiang with the the Uyghurs and in Syria and everywhere else. Um, Jamie. We're talking about deterrence and, uh, you know, we're not the only players in NATO and we're not even there on the front line. We weren't during the Cold War and we're not now. What are the other what are the other countries saying? You work all over uh, all over Central and Eastern Europe. What are the other NATO allies and and others saying about uh, about this? How afraid are they? How do you how do they assess this deterrence?
3: Yeah, I think it's, I was going to pick up on the, the t- deterrence question from a, a central European perspective, living here in Prague and traveling. I was also I was in Lviv a couple of weeks ago and I transited through Poland uh, right on the border of the same airport that Joe Biden uh, visited on the same day. Actually, I was there. Uh, and so these are countries that, unlike the U.S., are directly exposed, uh, the Baltic states as well. But the amazing thing uh, from what I've seen is The central European states have been willing to take much greater risks than the United States, than the British, than the French, uh, and they have the most to lose. They're the most vulnerable. Yes, they're part of NATO, so they uh, obviously trust in Article 5 and believe that they'll get backed up. But if you look at the actions that many of them have taken, they've been willing to go above and beyond some of the uh, debates that Washington is having about what type of equipment to, uh, to send to Ukrainians. Case in point, it uh, was just reported, I think, in the last day or two that here, the Czech Republic, the Czech government, has actually sent tanks into Ukraine, that along with the Slovaks, they're actually discussing allowing the Ukrainians to repair their damaged tanks in their countries. Uh, that obviously could be perceived by Moscow as an act of war and could actually bring retaliation and remember, uh, in even in here in the Czech Republic, uh the Russians have conducted sabotage attacks, uh, which actually results in the deaths of uh Czech civilians blowing up an, an ammunition depot uh with some of their special forces uh years ago. So they have actually acted in a hostile manner on the territory of these countries in the past, yet these countries Feel that uh, Ukraine truly is. I mean, they believe Vladimir Zelensky when he says that Ukraine is fighting for all of Europe because they believe that if Russia is not stopped in Ukraine, that they are next. Uh, for some of them, also, it's uh, because of their understanding of history and of the way the Soviet Union uh, engaged uh, in their own countries. Here in Prague, Soviet tanks rolled down the streets of many Czech. Cities in 68, Uh, the Baltic states have seen the same thing happen in the past. And so I think it's important for U.S. audiences uh, to just understand how personal uh, and emotional this issue is. It's not just governments making tactical decisions. The feeling is widespread in many of these societies about their duty to help Ukraine militarily, to support Ukrainians and refugees who are fleeing Uh, And it's really widespread here in the Czech Republic. There's also been a crowdfunding campaign for weapons, which has raised tens of millions of dollars of average Czechs, just giving their own personal money to literally pick out certain weapons that they want to send to the Ukrainian military. Uh, And that's become popular. We've had tens of thousands of people in the streets on a regular basis, protesting against the invasion, uh, making clear their support for the Ukrainian government. And so I think that, that, Story is often not completely understood uh, in the United States and in other parts of Europe, perhaps, about uh, the risk that these governments are willing to take. And from what I've seen, uh, for the most part, with a few exceptions in places like Hungary, uh, they've been willing to stick their necks out and they're being backed up uh, in a significant way by the, the public.
0: That's just inspirational to hear and 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 great news. I, I wish that uh, we had some of the courage that our weapons and our distance uh, gives us that uh, that they have. Uh, another interesting question, and any one of you can take this on. Um, should the US goal be to support a Ukrainian effort to reconquer Crimea and the entire Donbass? Now, what we've heard from Zelensky is 2014, right? That means he wants to go back. Uh, he wants to go back, doesn't doesn't want to give up the Donbass, but may be willing to write off Crimea. I don't know whether I'm misinterpreting. What what should our goal be here?
2: Look, there's there's no circumstance under which we should accept the Russian annexation of Crimea or occupation and, and faux declaration of independence of the Donbassian proxies. Um, that's Ukrainian territory, and we should never change our maps just as, as we didn't. And it seemed laughable, right? Throughout the Cold War, we always marked off the U.S. government doesn't recognize the incorporation of in the Baltic states into the Soviet Union. And I always, when I was growing up, found those little marks on the map to be kind of weird. But they are, it's important. And we must, you know, we must never never give up that principle. That having been said, I think it's, I think it's ex- unlikely in the extreme that there's a military operation the Ukrainians will be able to conduct to get back Crimea um so if you if so fred,
0: fred can i yeah. can i interrupt you why i mean they're kicking ass everywhere else
2: yeah the problem is danny it's just geography is, is 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 awful the access from ukraine to crimea is across a narrow isthmus with two roads it's the most easily defensible um border you could ever possibly hope to have and if there is any kind of russian resistance at all Um, It just will be very difficult for the Ukrainians to fight their way onto the peninsula, uh, which is also now a huge, fundamentally an island aircraft carrier for the Russians. It's just a huge, huge base and depot. So listen, if the Ukrainians think that they have a viable military operation to go take it, I'm all in favor of supporting them. Um, In reality, I think that's going to be hard. The occupied Donbass is a different question. Um, and there, I think it's going to depend on how badly the Russians are destroying themselves and what kind of counteroffensive the Ukrainians can muster in the East. I don't think it's out of the question the Ukrainians could recover part or all of Donbass uh, in a properly resourced counteroffensive um, if they wanted to try. And if they were up for it, I would be game because Putin and the Russians have been committing atrocities in the occupied territories of Donbass as well. They have been forcibly conscripting people whom they are claiming to protect. They have been disappearing people and executing people whom they have been claiming to protect against the supposed uh, fictitious genocidal uh, Ukrainian that doesn't exist in the real world. They have been doing this stuff in Donbass and those are still Ukrainian citizens. So if the Ukrainians have a plan and the ability to undertake liberating that, I'm in favor of it. Will Putin nuke everybody if the Ukrainians push into Donbass? I don't think so and I, and all i can say is see the point of you know see my my previous point about deterrence against nukes and the importance of establishing that principle to provide a cover for the ukrainians to liberate their own people
0: i don't know whether any of the other of you want to jump in um so if you do please please go ahead otherwise i want to um uh, follow up with uh, another question um a, a very quick and easy one everybody's been talking about Putin using chemical weapons, do we think that's going to happen? They certainly do in, in Syria, uh, but there was a lot of fuss about that a couple of weeks ago, and now we haven't seen much. Do, do Does anybody have a take on that?
1: I get to get started with this. Um, unfortunately, we think there is a possibility, a low possibility, that Putin could use uh, chemical weapons in Ukraine, um, especially against some of those um, besieged cities or some of those hardened lines that the Russians have not been able to make progress against. Um, unfortunately, you know we've seen the Russians use chemical weapons in Syria. Um, we've seen them use them in other places. Uh, obviously this wasn't a combat, but you know they were comfortable using uh, nerve agents in Salisbury in the UK. Um, and it would be a tactical decision for the Russians to do that. I think the United States and NATO made it clear that they would find the use of weapons of mass destruction um, unacceptable, there'd be serious consequences for that in order to deter that. However, um, like Fred said, only Putin knows what what Putin's going to do. And unfortunately, uh, we do think that um, it is possible. And to Jamie's point about the disinformation lines about uh, U.S. government funded bio labs in Ukraine, those information campaigns have been around for many years and they've greatly intensified the past several months. And those are in part in order to set conditions so that when if and when uh, a biological um, or chemical substance appears in Ukraine. Weapon substance appears in Ukraine. They can say, "Ah, those are the bioweapons we've been warning you about for forever." So they've set the information conditions to do it, and um, continues to be something that we think would be an extreme case. But unfortunately, I can't say that there's a there's no chance of that occurring.
0: Well, that wasn't the answer that any of us wanted to hear. Um, let's talk for a, a second about um, uh, about how how this ends. And um, I, I don't know how close we are to an end. I don't think perhaps you who watch the military situation has a sense, but I do think that that how this ends is as important as as how the war has, has gone. Um, it doesn't look like there's any possibility that Putin's stated aims of removing the drug addicts and Nazis from power is really going to work out according to his plan. Um, At a certain point, it also doesn't look like the Ukrainians are going to permit the Russians to end the wars that they have ended in other parts of, of, of Eastern Europe the same way. In other words, with a frozen conflict. Looks like the ukrainians are just not going to be game for the Russians sitting outside shelling them occasionally telling them what to do um as they have in, in places like Abkhazia and elsewhere um so what do you think about uh about how this ends and Jamie um I, you know I'd also be very interested to see how you think Putin manages this there's no going back for him there's no there's no going back to the more permissive, older, uh, pre-puffy Putin uh, of his 50s. Um, so what happens with that? Uh, jump in, any of you, where you want to take this.
2: Well, I want, I, I want to start by identifying a really dangerous way that this could end, um, which is unfortunately a, a track that I that I fear that we're on, which is that Putin will, will consolidate whatever control in the East uh, his military forces are able to consolidate, apparently by Victory Day, uh, is, the, is the timeline that's now currently being given by the Pentagon, which is May 5th, I think. Oh. Um, and that at that point, or at some point in there, he will offer a ceasefire uh, on the current lines. And he will offer a ceasefire and a negotiation of something that we might be tempted to call Minsk III, uh, since the Minsk II Accords, which had frozen the previous conflict, had worked out so well for everybody. And I'll tell you why I fear this. I fear it because it would give him the ability to break whatever momentum the Ukrainian counteroffensive can build. And it would put him in a much better um, position to renew his attack, including his invasion of Ukraine at a later date, having rebuilt the Russian military, um, because it gives Russia much more territory in Ukraine than it had had before. And frankly... It, the kind of territory that he currently has, if the ceasefire occurred along anything like the current lines, would make a, a viable Ukrainian state very hard to sustain. My fear is that as soon as you say ceasefire, there is a large community in the West that wants to leap on that because it prioritizes ending the fighting, ending the, stopping the fighting, without always recognizing that you can stop the fighting in a way that guarantees that worse fighting will ensue. And that's what a ceasefire along anything like these lines would guarantee. This is not some unknown evil person that we're dealing with. We've watched Putin manipulate ceasefires over the years. He is the expert. In addition to going for his second doctorate of evil right now, he is also the expert in tactical ceasefires that he then uses to set conditions for future aggression. And we need to remember that this war is the result of Putin himself deciding that the ceasefire that he himself imposed by force on Ukraine, which was a highly unequal and unjust ceasefire, he himself decided that that was not sufficient and simply wrecked it on his own with an invasion. Are we then going to support yet another ceasefire of this variety? I fear that there will be a large group in the West that will want to. And I think that it's important to resist. Now, look, if the Ukrainians want to accept a ceasefire, we, you know it is, it is not appropriate for us to demand that they fight more, or more than they want to fight. But if Ukrainians are saying that they want to continue their counteroffensive operations to liberate their people and prevent the atrocities that are occurring and they do not want to accept a ceasefire that stops them from doing that, we need to back them all the way in that and not put pressure on them to concede to a Putin-esque farcical ceasefire that will be nothing other than the prelude to yet another attack and cover for ongoing Russian atrocities against Ukrainians.
0: I'm pressing the wrong buttons per usual. Jamie, um, uh, what does this all ultimately mean? Uh, yeah, I would agree with Fred. I
3: think that's one dangerous scenario for Ukraine. And I I, I fear from what we've seen, at, at least in the near term, to be honest, I, I fear that Putin has more room for maneuver than Zelensky will on that front, uh, partly because of how... Uh, the propaganda apparatus inside Russia has moved to consolidate at least some support for the operation, especially if it now reverts to a really limited operation and the the body, uh, the body death count actually goes down, which is something I guess is an open question. But uh, if he doesn't have to justify as many funerals uh, and growing casualties, then Putin's not going to have many people to challenge him at home about however he wants to end this war. Whereas Zelensky... Uh, is going to be in a bind. Uh, Ukrainian Ukraine is democracy. It's a fractious democracy. Uh, even if Zelensky wanted to negotiate, he's going to face a lot of questions now from a public that's seen these atrocities, and uh, he's also going uh, potentially to get pressure from his external backers, uh, backers that may not have delivered all the weapons he wanted. Uh, but he may need for economic support, uh, depending on the state of the Ukrainian economy. Um, So that's the near term. And we'll see whether Putin tries to take that off ramp. It'll be interesting uh, to see. Um, I think in the medium term and longer term, though, Putin is still going to be at significant risk. Uh, We believe that he started this effort to exert information, complete information control many years ago, Uh, For a variety of reasons. In retrospect, maybe it was to prepare for this very military operation and he wanted to do something ambitious over uh, abroad outside the country. Um, But I think more likely than not, he was actually worried about transition issues as 2024 approaches. Uh, He always wanted to make sure uh, that he could extend uh, his rule. And I'm personally skeptical uh, that these extreme Steps He's taken will allow him to do that. There is one line of analysis now that's emerged that thinks that uh, the sanctions and the isolation are actually forcing all of the oligarchs around him to rally around him because they realize he's the only thing they've got at this point. But I think over time, that's going to fray. Uh, people are going to just choose to, to jump ship and leave. Uh, they've lost a lot of the benefits of this system that Putin and, and all of them had set up where uh, they were in power in Russia. They could vacation anywhere they wanted in the most glamorous spots around the world. Uh, They could have mega yachts. They could have multiple houses. Their kids could go to the West to go to school. Uh, And Putin just threw that all out uh, to chase fantasy Nazis in in Ukraine. And I would think that is going to sink in over time uh, when they can't travel, when their foreign money is gone and seized. Uh, And I think uh, as that fraying... Uh, increases, obviously, then the public dissent might find uh, some allies in, in more senior officials uh, who will start conversations about whether this man is the person that we want to continue to follow into the future. But I do think that's going to take time. And so it'll be interesting to see in these in, the next few months whether Putin chooses a quick off-ramp. And that may also be a sign that he has that same longer-term concern about his ability uh, to continue to, to lead Russia without additional dissent.
0: All right, so I mean, Jamie, what you're talking about has been the the stuff of of the inflection point articles here in the United States. This is a change. This is really a break with the past. This is a whole new strategic environment. And my fear, uh, much as I think Fred's intimated, is that in fact, we desperately do what we can to stuff the genie back in the bottle. And uh, and and return to status quo ante. Returning to status quo ante means that that inflection point, not just on Russia and and Putin's predations in Ukraine, but on our enabling of oligarchs. You know, I'm sorry, who thought to themselves, gee, it would really be cool if this creep friend of uh, Putin should own the Chelsea football club. I put this I put this mundanely for just that reason, you know, that we have always been willing to to look aside. And that goes not simply for Putin's cronies and friends and their giant yachts and their airplanes and their football clubs and their Chanel handbags, she said bitterly, but also. Uh, But also for the Chinese who have raised capital on U.S. stock markets and who use that money and use their companies to oppress their people, to oppress Hong Kong, to threaten us in the South China Sea. So that inflection point, you know, inshallah, if only that were the case. But my fear is exactly as you suggest, Jamie, that in fact, and, and Fred, that there will be that 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 change. Um, We have one last question and just a moment for it. And I'm not quite sure that any of us, maybe perhaps slightly only me, but maybe not, um, uh, can answer it. There's been a lot of talk about trying Putin for war crimes. Okay. Does that threat mean anything to him? Um, Is the International Criminal Court, you all know what I think about this, uh, an idea um, and how can he be tried? How can this be in any way meaningful, given that all these people are actually in Russia?
2: Look, it's I, it's important to do this. He is a war criminal. He's a war criminal on a world historical scale, as the Soviets would have said. Um, and it is I, I do think that if the even if you regard all of that stuff as being purely symbolic, the symbolism is important. And it's important to establish the principle that just because you're the head of a, of a country with a, a huge nuclear arsenal does not mean that you are immune from the processes that have been aimed at us, that have been aimed at Israel, that have been aimed at at, at other countries um, that were not committing war crimes. Um, and that when you actually do commit war crimes, the, the international community that claims to hold people accountable for that will hold you accountable. Um, is it going to change Putin's calculus about anything? No, absolutely not. It's, uh, it's, you know, are we going to ever see Putin, you know, let off in handcuffs? Of course not. Uh, that, you know, that isn't going to happen. Um, so we shouldn't imagine that it's going to have a practical effect on Putin right now. But I look, I do think that the, the principles of humanitarian uh, law are important. I think that the principles that the international community should attempt to identify accountability, whether or not a sanction follows for committing egregious crimes against humanity, are important. And I think that that matters. Now, I think what matters more is nailing all of the people in the Russian chain of command who are legally responsible for the war crimes in the way that people in the Nazi chain of command were responsible for things that the Nazis did and that others in other chains of command have been responsible. And I think that that is important. I think nailing any of the oligarchs who are complicit in any of these things is important why because to jamie's point at a certain point it is possible and no one can ever put an probability estimate on this but it is possible that enough people around putin who matter will decide that the cost of staying with him is outweighed by other costs and other concerns and i do think that it is important to make it clear to them that he cannot shield them and that they will be living in a world in which they can only go to the countries that are committedly evil and that happen not to be the places where it's most easy to get real Chanel handbags, although knockoff Chanel handbags are readily available.
0: Jamie, I'm gonna give you the last word here. Um, is this what people are looking for? Is, is, is justice uh, the right answer, the final answer? Um, does that help?
3: I mean, I think clearly the Ukrainian people are going to demand uh, justice. And I I do think that uh, as much as possible, countries should back those demands. I mean, I think my general observation uh, is that when it comes to war crimes, it's important to note that Putin was a war criminal well before this invasion of Ukraine. Absolutely. Uh, Fred also mentioned what the Russians have been doing in Donbass for years. I'd recommend to anyone who wants to know more about that. One of our uh, correspondence from Donetsk, uh, Stas Aseev was actually held for more than two years in a prison camp uh, in Donetsk. And actually, he's, he's a brilliant writer. He wrote a book about it, which has been translated to English called The Torture Camp on Paradise Street. If you read that book, it's uh, straight out of the Nazi era in terms of the tactics used against Ukrainians who were captured and accused of being spies, uh, journalists, Uh, and Stas was one of the lucky ones who actually got out in a prisoner swap. We have another one of our colleagues, Vlad Sapenko, currently detained in Crimea. He testified in open court after he was detained a year ago that he was tortured by the FSB as soon as he was arrested. Uh, So these are the tactics that they've used in Ukraine in the past. Uh, And unfortunately, much of the world looked away while we saw uh, the Kremlin back similar tactics, obviously in Syria. Uh, And so the more and more Uh, We ignore these sorts of war crimes. I think it just emboldens those who are willing to commit them to continue to use this as a tactic elsewhere. And so I think that's one of the main reasons that there needs to be a push for accountability. But I agree with Fred. It's probably uh, unlikely that Putin himself will be held uh, accountable uh, by the external world. But I think it, it will be a factor in... Uh, the analysis of many people around him will have to make decisions about uh, themselves and whether they want to have the ability to travel outside of Russia again uh, and to live their lives uh, in uh, a free and independent way. Um, And so I would hope it would weigh heavily on their decisions about whether to continue to support uh, this brutal regime.
0: Um, To our audience, uh, All of the things that have been mentioned, the maps that you've seen are available um, on uh, first, uh, uh, understandingwar.org is the the ISW uh, uh, website, our own critical threats project, criticalthreats.org, or you can get them through AEI and Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty has its own excellent website, but also a daily email that I rely on for the most up-to-the-minute information that I really feel confident and it's coming from the ground. I trust it implicitly. To all of you, please keep up the amazing work that you're doing. Um, You are the reason institutions like AEI exist and why we continue to be able to fight this good fight for the principles that we all believe in. With that, uh, thank you very much to everybody and to our uh, staff who facilitated this uh, event. Goodbye. Hi, it's Danny Pletka. If you enjoyed this event, and I hope you did, please consider subscribing to or listening to my podcast with my AEI colleague, Mark Thiessen. It's called What the Hell Is Going On, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your favorite shows. Thanks for listening.